Let's pray. Our Father, it's um, such a precious and important thing that we do together, uh, even though we're separated, that we spend time now wrestling with your word and thinking into the things of Christ. We pray, please, that um, you would bless this time. Uh, please let our whole time together be something that honours you, that's an encouragement. Uh, but please let this time particularly be a time where we concentrate well. I speak what's true. We engage deeply in the things that you've given us. And please um, grow and change us through that process. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, um, as you heard, we're starting a new series in a couple of weeks' time. But for the next two weeks, we're doing a short series on spiritual warfare. Uh, how it is we engage in the spiritual realm. And particularly we're doing it in light of this time because we've been getting a bunch of questions over the, well, over the months about uh, you know, lockdown, um, you know, churches not being able to meet. Is this the work of Satan? You know, what role does Satan have in this time actually? Uh, what about vaccines? Is that the mark of the beast? Is that Satan doing something that's undermining the Christian faith? Um, what, what about the restrictions that government's bringing? You know, is Satan involved in all of that? And so it, it has raised a bunch of questions about the person of Satan, about his work in the world. We've been looking at Esther and Ruth and seeing God's hidden hand. Is there a satanic hand that's hidden behind all of that as well? Um, now, just as we start there, right Right there you know that we're talking about church stuff. I mean, you wouldn't have this conversation in any other context, yeah? There'd be very few places where people would be asking the question about the work of Satan. It's not the local sports club that this is happening or the school or whatever, uni. It's, um, most of our community has done a really good job of making the whole idea of Satan just seem a complete mockery. You know, you've got to be a real primitive, naive person to still believe in... So I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are listening and thinking to yourself, well, I'm not sure of Satan, what do you mean? Others of you are going, yeah, what about? Let me just give you a couple of quick things because the assumption that we're going to be working with all the way through this time is that there is an evil presence, given the title, if you like, Satan, the devil, that is at work in our world. And I'll give you, I'll give you three reasons why I think that's uh, compelling. First one is that if you do, do believe there's a God... You're already committed to the idea of a spiritual realm, not just the physical, material realm. God is spirit. So already you're in that space of being aware that, yes, there's another dimension to our existence. Um, and if there is a God, then it's not entirely surprising that there would be a malevolent force opposed to him in the spiritual realm. I'll give you the second one. Uh, there is a kind of evil that we see in the world that begs the question, is this just humans at work? I mean, human, humans have the capacity to do some dreadful evil. Uh, we'll come to that actually shortly. But there's a kind of evil that pervades some places that does suggest there's another malevolent force at work through humans. There's a second thing. It's hard to actually make sense of evil sometimes without attention to some powerful force behind it. But the third one is this, Jesus. We just had a reading from Matthew chapter 16 and Jesus there speaks about the person of Satan. Get behind me, Satan, he says. And in this gospel account, you have Jesus engaging with this malevolent, this evil presence in Matthew chapter 4. 
we're told about a series of temptations that Satan came and put upon Jesus. So Jesus speaks about the person of Satan, the devil, uh, does this without uh, reluctance. Uh, for him, it's obvious and clear that there's this kind of power in the world, in the universe. And every single gospel that we have that records the events of Jesus are unanimous that there's a kind of demonic presence that happens in our world as well. I want to suggest you there's a bunch of reasons. The, the power of Satan is real. There is a kind of spiritual force for evil, which leads us to ask the question, is he at work now? Is he particularly at work now and should we be worried? Well, the answer to that question is it's not simple. Because there's not a Bible verse that says lockdowns are the work of Satan. There's no Bible verse that says that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. There is a reference to the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, um, but we're not told what it is. And so if you conclude it's the vaccine, then you've made an assumption. You brought that. How would you know whether it is or not? The key to working out whether Satan's involved in the lockdowns and the vaccines and all these things, is to do some digging and be clear on the kind of things Satan does. The better we can understand how he actually does work, the better position we'll be to see if he's at work in this or that, do you see? So how does Satan work in the world? What ought we expect him to be doing? Where might we expect him to be at work? That's the kind of question we'll wrestle with. I want to suggest to you there's, a, there's one moment recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, the reading we had, Matthew chapter 16, where you get a window into the work of Satan in a very helpful, important way. So let me run you through it. It's a very significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 16 is kind of like a, a turning point of the whole ministry of Jesus. Up until Matthew 16, he's been showing his disciples what kind of person he is. He's someone who calms storms, heals the sick, teaches like no one's ever taught, with an authority that no one's ever seen before, casts out demons. He's an extraordinary figure that the disciples are coming to terms with. And in Matthew chapter 16, he puts the question to them, now who do you think I am? You've seen me in action, now who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you've got it. In fact, you didn't get it. You didn't work this out by flesh and blood. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. You're right on it. Um, I am the Messiah. Now, what does it mean to be the Messiah? It means to be the Messiah is just a word for uh, the great king that the Old Testament was anticipating would one day come to rule the earth, to bring all the kingdoms of humanity under the rule of God again, to establish God as the uncontested king of the universe the Messiah who would rule forever over all nations. And Peter says, you're that one, the one we've been waiting for. The figure of history that's been coming up to this point. It's a very significant moment. But then verse 21 comes. And from that time on, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what he's going to do. That he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed. 
and on the third day raised to life again. Peter explains, Jesus said, yes, you've got me, I'm the Messiah, but let me tell you what me as the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, be humiliated, shamed, tortured, crucified, dead. In verse 22, Peter takes him aside and says, well, begins to rebuke him. He's just called him the Messiah, the King of the universe, but he now... I let me explain how you're meant to do this job. So a little bit of a strange thing happens there. But he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, Jesus turned and said to Peter these words. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Right there, Jesus escalates the whole conversation massively. Get behind me, Satan. Now, what is going on? Why is it that Jesus now refers to Peter as Satan? Let me give you a couple of things that's not happening. It's, it's not that Jesus is overreacting. It's not as if Jesus just has this ploy that when someone disagrees with him, he pulls out the Satan card. No, that's not how Jesus works. He's not overreacting. The second thing it's not is that Peter somehow turns into Satan. You know, suddenly Peter's face changes and his head spins and he, he just becomes this demonic Satan presence. No, that's not what's happening. Peter's still Peter. And in fact, just a few verses earlier, had had the work of God the Father in his life to reveal to him who Jesus was. No, no, Peter doesn't become Satan. What is going on? Well, to understand it, you need to go back to chapter 4. Come back with me to chapter 4. Grab your Bible and come back to chapter 4. This is very early on, obviously, in the ministry of Jesus. And in verse 1, let me read it for us. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted by Satan. And there's a series of temptations that happen. There are three of them. And I want to draw your attention just to the last one. Look at verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said, all of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Satan gives him a choice, uh, worship me or worship God your father. And Jesus says, I'm never going to worship you. I meant to worship my father. I'll continue to worship him. The text tells you it's more than just a choice. Satan takes him there, verse 1, to tempt him. Which means this choice that's put before Jesus to worship Satan or worship God the Father is a choice that's tempting. Do you know what I mean? It's not just a, it's not just a choice, it's a tempting choice. The nature of the choice would play upon Jesus to want to do it, which he has to choose not to. You see, it's a temptation. Um, what is it about it that makes it a temptation? Because I tell you, if, if Satan came to me and said, worship me or worship God, I'd just say, Nick, Nick off, worship Father, I'm not worshipping you. So what is it about it that makes it a temptation? Well, look carefully there, verse 9, well, verse 8, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you. If you just bow down and worship me. 
What, Jesus, what Satan's saying is, I've, I've got all the kingdoms of the earth here and I can give them to you. Now, it's not as if he's lying at this point. John chapter 14 and Ephesians chapter 2 suggest that Satan does have a certain control over the kingdoms of the earth to be able to give them to Jesus. And he offers Jesus to give these kingdoms of people to Jesus, to be under Jesus. Now, how was that a temptation? Well, that Jesus could gain the kingdoms of the world by that one act of worshipping Satan meant that he didn't have to do it the way the Father wanted him to do it. See, Jesus came to gain the kingdoms of the world, to bring them back under the Father, to bring them back under his rule, to establish himself as the Messiah, the King of the universe, you see. But the way the Father had sent him into the world to win back the kingdoms, the Father wanted him to do that by suffering, being humiliated, shamed, tortured, crucified and die. The Father's way for him to come into the kingdoms and having them serve him was to lose his life at great cost and humiliation on the cross. And Satan says, I can just give it all to you. You don't have to go the way the Father wants you to go. You don't have to submit to the Father's way. Just bad and mean, I'll give it to you. You see now the nature of the temptation. It's a shortcut. It's a way of, don't go God's way. You don't have to submit to his costly will. Just bad and mean. Fast forward to Matthew 16. Jesus, verse 21, says, I've come as the Messiah to suffer, be shamed and humiliated, tortured and crucified under the Father's will. The Father wants me to go this way. That's what I've come to do. And Peter takes him aside and says, never. You're a king. You're not going to suffer. You're a king. You're not going to be shamed like that. You're going to come into your kingdom with, with glory and power and prestige and people are going to fall all over you. That's the way you're going to exercise your kingdom. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because what he sees in Peter is the same temptation that he saw in Matthew 4 with Satan tempting him. Peter was saying what Satan said. Don't go the way your father says. Don't go the way of the shame of the cross. Don't gain your kingdom by suffering and sacrifice. You're the king. You're our king. You're meant to be glorious. Don't go that way. And the point is that Peter is channeling Satan. Now, was Peter conscious that he was doing that? No, he had no clue he was doing that. I don't think he had any different feeling, any kind of evil feeling. He just, he just instinctively went, no, king, my king won't suffer and die. My king's going to be the glorious one. And Jesus says, you are channeling Satan. You are actually expressing what Satan's about. Peter had absorbed Satan's way of seeing reality, the way of thinking about life that he got from Satan. He's absorbed what Satan thinks greatness is. You see, 
Satan. Uh, Satan was an angel who fell. And he fell because of his pride, wanting to be more glorious, you see. So Satan's way of pursuing greatness is to grasp after, to be seen as great with status and privilege and power. Not submission, not being humbled. That's not Satan's way of finding greatness, not sacrifice. Whereas Jesus comes from the Father and lives his life in submission. And it's because of his humble submission that he is great because God's greatness is seen not in glory and prestige but in humble sacrificial submission. Jesus comes and submission to his father was joy. It was his food, it was his life to do the will of his father, to bend his will to the will of his father if you like. Because greatness for God is humble sacrificial service which is completely at odds with Satan's way. And Peter had absorbed Satan's way and completely misunderstood what Jesus was doing. You see, Peter was speaking as someone who has been raised in the world, ruled by Satan. And the world is opposed to God and his way. That's why if you look at the end there at verse 23... Jesus says, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Literally, you don't have in mind the, the things of God, but the things of man. The way man thinks is the way, Peter, you're thinking. You're not thinking like a God person, thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking man thoughts. And the reason you're thinking man thoughts is because you've been living in the world of men who have been ruled by Satan. You show, let me show, come to Ephesians chapter 2 and you'll see this connection drawn, drawn very explicitly for us. Come and have a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I can't hear the paper rustling, so it's a bit disconcerting. But anyway, there you are. Yeah, good. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now notice what the Apostle Paul's just, he's connected two things. To follow the ways of this world, the, the, the ways of men, the ways of this world and the spirit who rules this world, Satan. The apostle does is he links those two things together. Now this is massive. Put a big underline under this. Because I tell you, Satan is real and he's at work. But he's not at work in dark, scary movies. And he doesn't only appear when things smell evil, when things feel dark. He's at work shaping the world's values. Shaping the values of mankind. Shaping our values and our instincts so that we think his way. He's at work shaping our culture and what it cares about. So the way of man, the way of the world, the way of culture has been shaped by Satan. 
but in a way that our sinful nature wants it to be. You look at verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You see, what Paul does here is he now joins the idea of um, the ways of the world and Satan who stands behind that, shaping its culture and its values, and what's in our human heart actually aligning with that, wanting that, following the ways of our flesh, our sinful nature, gratifying the cravings, the desires and thoughts of our nature. And just dig here for a moment. What he says is we lived amongst them satisfying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Um, and, and what Paul is effectively saying is we lived amongst them satisfying the messed up part of ourself, following that part of who I am that's sinful, that's messed up. Now think into that, following the desires of the flesh, my nature, who I am that's fallen and broken and sinful, which does suggest there are some desires I have that are okay. See, we do have some desires as humans that are okay. You, know, you get hungry and you have a desire to eat. That's not a bad desire, a craving that's good. You're lonely and hurting and you have a craving, a hunger, a desire for love. That's a good desire. So there are some desires that we have that are not wrong. But what Paul says is there's a kind of desire that comes from my heart that is part of who I am that's a sinful, broken, fallen craving that's shaped by Satan and the world and the culture around me. Now our great problem amongst all of that is how do you tell which is which? How do you tell which craving and desire is just neutral, natural, okay? How do you tell which craving and desire is corrupted, polluted, shaped by Satan and the values of the world? How do you know which is which? Well, you can't, except that God tells you. And you can't because my heart is so messed up, I can't trust it. Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, that place I go to feel whether something's right or wrong, the, the, the place I go to have an instinct about what I should or should, is deceitful. It's corrupted, it's fallen, it's messed up. Uh, to discern what's good and neutral and okay and what's bad and wrong and part of Satan's influence. How do I discern that? Well, Proverbs tells me to lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge God. You see, the, the, in part here, how you feel about things, your instincts for things, aren't infallible. Let me put it another way. Your instincts about what's right and wrong, good and bad, are fallible. They're broken, they're messed up. You can't trust them. And the work of Satan, the real work of Satan, the deep work of Satan, is to get us to trust our desires, our instincts, our cravings, rather than trust God and his word. There it is. 
Do you know the real enemy for God's person? It's not lockdown, it's not the vaccine. Do you know the real enemy for God's person? Almost every Disney movie. Almost every Disney movie you've seen. Why? Now that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but almost every Disney movie. What's the message of almost every Disney movie? Let me hear it from you. What's the message of every Disney movie? Follow follow your heart follow your heart and that's got the smell of sulfur all over it satan who shapes now i don't mean disney's a satanic organization i don't mean that i don't think they're sacrificing chooks at midnight in their offices and these kinds of things i don't think it's like that but what i'm saying is disney has absorbed the values of the world that are shaped by satan to think thoughts that are about pride and not God. And Disney's brought that in and has actually been shaping generations to think, follow your heart. That's the reliable way to work out. And, and, and God's going, no, no. That's the great danger for us. You see, you know, Disney, I don't, you know, watch them or have watched. It's probably a bit late now, isn't it? But... Um, you know, there are mixed things in the movies and of course there's okay stuff and if you have kids one day, watch them with a the remote in your hand and stop it whenever you see weird things happen that are, um, alert your kids. But what I'm trying to say here is the point here is that um, what you see in the media, what you see in Hollywood, what you see through Instagram, what you see on socials, what you see in all of these things is a set of values operating. A way of thinking about right and wrong, good and evil, that's shaped by the world. And Satan stands behind it. And it's absorbed into us. Because our hearts want it, verse 3. You see, here's the challenge. Peter didn't have a clue that he was voicing Satan's thought. It was a massive shock to him. He wasn't demon-possessed. It was just that he was so shaped by his culture and the world, which was shaped by Satan, that he ends up confronted with the way God thinks, and he thinks it's wrong. He's opposed to it, because he's so captive to the way of thinking that's shaped by Satan. And he ends up partnering Satan in trying to stop Jesus, do the very thing that's the way of saving the world. And yet, just a few moments earlier the work of God's spirit was in his life revealing who Jesus was to him do you see how messed up we can be Christian you can be so shaped I can be so shaped by the world with Satan standing behind all of that that we can have strong reactions to things and voice our reactions against those things and unbeknownst to us, we're voicing reactions that are really sinful, satanic, worldly. We're just channeling him against the things of God. It's, it happens regularly. <laughs> you, you, you see, just dig here for a moment. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Every sense that you have in your heart that people should just be themselves and no one should judge them is straight out of the pit of hell. 
that everyone should just be who they want to be and no one should ever judge them is completely shaped by Satan and his thoughts. But in our system of life today, that's just a given. That's just an assumption. That's of course how you would think. The thought you have, the instinct you have, that the idea that one day all of humanity will stand before God and be judged and some cast into hell, the reaction you have against that is because you were shaped by the values of the world and behind that is Satan who doesn't want humanity to think there's a judgment to come. The, the, the instinct that you have, that freedom... Freedom is finally and most truly found in the place where I have no restraints. Where I can, I can just be and do whatever I want to be and do. And if I feel out of place and I want to be a different thing, I can be that. And no one should stop me because that's true freedom. That instinct that you have has been shaped by the world we live in, not by God. That instinct you have that to submit to someone else, to live in submission to someone else is oppressive, is, is, is hurtful, will undermine your true humanity. That reaction you have to the idea of submission is shaped by Satan and the world that we're in. That thought that you have that life is about your comfort and your leisure and your ease the point is, these things seem harmless. Do you see? These things seem like they're not evil. They're just me making sense of what my heart says and everyone says that's okay. They say, but I'm offering that Ephesians chapter 2, Matthew chapter 16, I'll show you another passage in a moment, tells you that all of this comes from the pit. That there's a work of Satan that's so subtle and unseen that it's shaping us without us even being aware. And at work of all of at the root of all of this, the real work of Satan is deception. Deception. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden? God had given restraint to Adam and Eve that you're not to eat of this particular tree. And what does Satan do? Satan comes along and says, Did God really say? Deception. And then Oh, he only said that because he didn't have your best at heart. Deception. Jesus in John's Gospel says that Satan is the father of lies. The very nature of his language is to be a liar, to deceive, to play upon our nature, to want pride, to not want God. He plays on that. And the deceptions he brings to us are attractive deceptions. If you've been fishing, you know how to go fishing. You... You put on a hook, an attractive bit of bait for the fish to come and you put the bait in such a way that the fish can't see the hook. That's the whole point, that it's attractive and that's how Satan works. He plays on our heart to bring attractive things to us and he hides the hook. He makes the bait feel very attractive. Love is love, it's very attractive but he hides the hook. This is the work of Satan to reshape our thinking, what we value, and then to enslave us to our own sinful thinking and cravings. You know the vaccine. The vaccine's not in the same ballpark as this deeper work of Satan. It's just a health measure. It's just like any other piece of medicine. It's like every other vaccine that our world has created over the decades. 
It's not any more the work of Satan than Panadol is or chemotherapy is. It's just a health measure. Now, it might be you still don't like the vaccine and don't want to get it, but make that decision based on medical advice, not on whether it's a spiritual thing or not, because it's just a piece of human ingenuity. You know, one of the great dangers, which is a spiritual danger, is all the talk about spiritual dangers. One of the great dangers, which is a spiritual danger, is all the talk about spiritual dangers when those dangers are identified to be the wrong things. They point us in the wrong direction so that we can be so busy looking at those things that we're left vulnerable to where Satan really is at work. See, in all of this, I'm making a very big claim that the real work of Satan, the big work that we need to be most concerned about is the way that he shapes our thinking and our hearts and our instincts to make us think we know what's right and what's wrong we feel what's right and what's wrong that's the real work of satan for us to be shaped by worldly values by the values of the world by the media these that is the real work of satan now i'd offer that if i'm right on this you'd expect it to appear elsewhere in the bible and i'm going to suggest this that whatever point you drop in the New Testament letters, wherever you, whatever letter of the New Testament you read, if it talks about satanic work, you'll see what I'm talking about emerge. Let me show you just one. We're going to next week look at another, but come and look at 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last big passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is kind of an opportunity to test what I'm saying, to see is this the way the New Testament really thinks about the work of Satan. Have a look there in verse 1, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, and just actually note this, that, that this letter, 1 Timothy, is written to Timothy, and Timothy's living in the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was a hotbed of magic and magic arts, demonic forces and so on. And chapter 4, he comes to the topic of demons. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So what we have now is a very overt, a very obvious expression of the fact that Timothy is going to be engaged with people in Ephesus who are being influenced by demonic spirits. Now, what would you expect Paul to say next? What would his advice, do you think, be to Timothy leading a church influenced by demonic spirits? Well, if you've got any connection with contemporary kind of spiritual warfare stuff, you'd expect Paul to say to Timothy, you need to work out how to do exorcisms and you need to identify territorial spirits. You need to work out how to get their names and call them out. Paul does none of that. Have a look at verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So what he's moved straight into is the idea of lying. Satan, his natural language is deceit, is lying. And look at it, verse 3, what are the lies that Satan, that these demonic spirits are saying? Verse 3, they're forbidding people to marry. I thought it would be more profound than that. No, no, no. The horrible demonic thing they're doing is, is teaching people not forbidding them to marry and ordering them to abstain from certain foods. Now, how is that demonic? 
Because what's going on is, what the demonic spirits are saying is, if you want to get close to God, intimate with God, then you ought not get married because that'll pollute you. You ought not eat certain foods because that'll pollute your spiritual life. The physical things of these will pollute your physical life. That's what's going on. And Paul says, these things are being created by God and are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. You see, what Paul says is the stuff of physical world, food, marriage, medicines, these are just good things that God's given us. They won't make you further away from God or closer to God. They don't impact your spiritual life. They're physical, medical things and so on, marriage and what have you. But notice he says there, verse 3, to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see, he's combating lies with truth. Verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. You see, the Apostle Paul, he's banging down onto, if you're going to combat Satan, the father of lies, you combat Satan with the truth, with preaching what's true with declaring the truth, encouraging people in the truth. Verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. There is not one word here about exorcisms or territorial spirits. The way you combat the spirit realm is with the truth and godliness. You see verse 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Godliness. I want you to notice this. He starts with demonic spirits, deceiving teachers, hypocritical liars, and he ends up talking about being godly and heaven. How did he go from demonic spirits to being godly? How did he get to that place? Because the key battleground, the key spiritual battleground is for our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's that we might trust God and his word and obey God and his word and live lives that are holy and righteous and different from the world. That's how you combat Satan. That's where he goes. Godliness. It's God's will, 1 Thessalonians, that you be holy. That is the great, that you trust God, that you obey his word and live lives that reflect the truth of God's word in the way you live. And then how did he end up talking about the kingdom, the heaven? So promise for both the present life and the life to come. How did he end up there? Because the, the heart of Christ's work Jesus came to save us for a new age, the home of righteousness. This isn't home. One of the works of Satan is to make us think that this is home. That what matters most is that you get the best life now. That's straight from the pit. But one of the works of Satan is to make you think that this is the life that matters and don't worry about the one to come. To set your minds here, whereas the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit is to set our hearts on the things above, 
where Christ is seated. Can I just say in all of this, therefore don't obsess about your health. To be obsessed about your health and the virus and making sure you never touch, go close to anyone who might have it, that's to be someone like the world who only has this life and is wanting to make sure this life never has any risks in it. No, no, no. If you're in touch with God by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus, you've got a hope for a heaven. This life's just a short thing that we're passing through. You're able to take risks with your health then. We'll be coming back to church shortly. There's a big claim. Church will be back open in the next month, six weeks. And it'll be a place though where COVID is around. So it'll be a risky environment. And I want to encourage you, I mean, I know most of you just live your life taking risks, but I want you to do it thoughtfully as someone who's aware that it might be dangerous now to come to church. But that's okay. How do you battle Satan in all of this? Down to verse 13 and let's pull this together. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. There it is. No mention of exorcism, no mention of territorial spirits, no mention of naming. It's public reading of Scripture teaching and preaching why because those things bring us in touch with God's mind that we might have our hearts transformed that we break free from the ways of the world and start to be calibrated to God's values what he sees matters that I can actually start making wise decisions that are honoring to him the truth of the word of God you see in a, in a sense tonight the big point actually is to watch for misdirection you know we've had a big weekend of sport I don't know if you're into sport and stuff but we've had all kinds of great sporting uh, events this last couple of days and one of the things in sport is the dummy pass you know where you the you part you know go to pass get everyone to look there and then you run around them or in boxing you know to, to faint and look like you're going to punch somewhere else it the, the kind of dummy thing that goes on well I tell you one of the dangers in the spiritual warfare is that is that Satan is doing a dummy on us. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's making it look like he's at work over here so that we're all focused over there on politics and vaccines and lockdowns and when actually he's at work over here shaping the way we value our hearts, what we feel and think to be like the world around us. He can make us focus on exactly the wrong thing and so miss the big thing. The real battle is that we might know God's word, trust God's word and obey God's word and live therefore not for this world but for the world to come. Honouring Jesus with our bodies in godliness and holiness. You know, it matters what you do on Monday. It matters how you treat each other. It matters how you treat your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that you restrain from sexual immorality, that you love one another with a wholesome, noble love. The work of Satan that we should be... Should we be worried about the work of Satan? Yes. 
We should be. He's a roaring lion seeking to devour. We should be worried. But we ought to be worried about where he's really at work and be alert to his greatest danger. Lies, deception, shaping our hearts and so combating him by being deep in the word, trusting it, obeying it, living it out. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do need to pray. Uh, we're conscious that we live in a world so shaped by Satan and his hand in our world, in our media, all the social media, all the different voices we hear, so much controlled by the world and its values, the way it thinks. And Lord, we need your help to, to see the truth of what our hearts are like, to see the truth of our deep need for your word. Please help us be in it. Please help us come to your word humble and ready to receive deeply the correction and the rebuke and the encouragement that it brings, that we might be shaped more and more to see the world through your eyes and not as the world sees it. Please grow us, guard us, protect us during this time. We ask it in Jesus' name.